Good afternoon, this is Resonance 104.4 FM. My name is Frank Key and this is Hooting Yard on the Air. Half an hour of prose as usual. Those of you um, who are keen readers of the Hooting Yard website will have noticed that it hasn't been updated for um, almost two months now, which is extremely bad news. The reason for this is what we doctors call writer's block. However, um, I have been working on something, and uh, I'd like to read it to you now. This is, this is a, a piece entitled Untitled Work in Progress, which is what it is. So this is not a finished piece, um, and I may even continue it next week. But this is all I've written so far. Look at this man coming up the path, the waterlogged path. They call him the District Line Dentist. He has dentistry in his blood. He has blood on his shoes. Blood on his shoes, talc in his hair, and as he walks along the waterlogged path, he is shouting and shouting and shouting. The blood on his shoes is still wet and warm from the slaughtering he has been engaged in, up in the hills where the district line never goes. It is not the blood of humans. There are no humans in those hills, only cardboard figures and hardboard figures and balsa wood figures and an enormous colony of very, very frightening birds, like savage and pitiless birds from an ancient myth, except that these birds are real, fat with feathers and absolutely terrifying. You may have seen their like on the sides of buses in Pointy Town, for it was images of similar birds that were used in that ill-conceived advertising campaign for a brand new type of fizzy and frothing detergent pill which, it was claimed, would put more pep into your pots and pans. We know that banging pots and pans is a traditional method of scarifying birds, but it would not work with these birds, the ones that perch on the cardboard and hardboard and balsa wood figures in the hills from which the man they call the district line dentist has just descended, with blood on his shoes and a song in his heart. That is why he is shouting. He has a song in his heart, but he cannot sing. His song is about the sad final days of Edgar Allan Poe, and the chorus replicates that neurasthenic writer's dying words. Reynolds! 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 That is what the district line dentist is shouting as he clumps along the path in his blood-soaked shoes. He clumps with a limp, for his legs are of uneven length, only just but decisively so. He was not born that way. When he was a cherubic, bonny baby, both his legs were measured and they were found by several independent authorities to be identical in length. Something happened to him between then and now to mar his symmetry, something he has always blamed on the ferocious birds up in the hills. That is why he is such a bitter man and a bird-hater. He hated birds, but he was fond of moles. He had a little toy mole made of cambric and string, a puppet, you could call it, which sat on a china plate on the dresser in the parlour of the boarding house by the seaside where he lived. 
Seeing a mole on a plate, many people chided the district line dentist that it looked as if he wanted the mole for his dinner, albeit that it was only a cambric and string toy. The presence of a knife and fork alongside the plate served only to emphasise this misapprehension, but that was part of his plan, or I should say, part of one of his many plans. Dentistry was in his blood, but he no longer practised that trade, for he was an old, old man, retired to a seaside boarding house, a boarding house named after Ray Meland, the film star who memorably appeared in The Man with X-Ray Eyes. The gardens of the boarding house were riotous with foxgloves, and as you may know, foxgloves are poisonous to moles. At least, that is the case in the land of which I speak. It may or may not be the case elsewhere in the boundless universe. But of course, the foxgloves which bloomed in the Raymerland boarding house gardens were not harmful to the district line dentist's mole, for it was but a toy, a plaything sat on its plate on the dresser. The cutlery aligned next to the plate was of exquisite workmanship, of the finest metal, manufactured, according to legend, by gnomes, though the tales told of these gnomes were full of holes and every version was different. Sometimes the gnomes were said to live under a big, bright mountain far away, and sometimes they were said to spend their lives jetting from one paradise island to another, making their knives and forks and spoons during stopovers in airport snack bars. In truth, nothing can have been more mundane than the actual making of the cutlery, and gnomes played no part in it, really. Every last teaspoon and sugar tong was made in a great grim factory, guarded by beagles, plonked in a field at the end of the district line, Hallelujah Field, where no grass grew, only weeds and tares. There are storms in teacups and barnstorms, but it's a very particular sort of storm that engages our attention now. Henry Cow recorded a piece entitled Bitten's Storm Over Ulm, the title taken from a passage in one of Charles Fort's Compendia of Anomalous Phenomena, and likewise we are dealing with a storm of birds. For up in the hills where the district line never goes, a surge of magnetism convulsed the colony of terrifying birds, and they filled the sky, screeching and shrieking, maddened beyond measure. Hearing the racket, the dentist clumped to a halt on the waterlogged path. His shoes were steeped in the blood of slaughtered birds, but for each one he had killed, dozens more had appeared, flapping in from who knows where, gathering in the hills, perched and brooding, and awaiting the burst of magnetic energy sending them into a storm in the sky. But this was Pointy Town, not Ulm, and these were no bitterns. And the waterlogged path that came down from the hills led, in its meandering way, to a cluster of huts on the beach, huts that once belonged to boat builders, Noah figures whose beards were stiff with the salt of the sea, long gone now, the boats they built shattered and broken, 
wooden fragments scattered across the sands, eaten by worms, as those who built the broken boats were themselves devoured as they lay in their tombs in the pretty churchyard of St Bibbly Dib Dibs, hard by the beach and popular with poets. Sandworms and earthworms and the work they do have been ignored by graveyard poets of Pointy Town, and for that they should be ashamed. The district line dentist was heading for the huts where once boats had been built, for there he believed he would find sanctuary from the vengeful birds. Pelange and Frumier are among those who have written authoritatively about ritual appeasement of bird gods, and while I'm not suggesting for one moment that there is a divinity lurking in the breasts of those screeching horrors in the sky over the hills, the sky now black with their swooping, flapping savagery, incidentally, yet we would do well to recall, in particular, Palange's nostrum regarding protecting shrouds. But of course, that poppin' Jay writer knew nothing of birds driven bonkers by eerie magnetic forces which we still do not fully understand. Luckily for him, the district line dentist did. It was no accident that the church by the beach was consecrated to Saint Bibbly Dib Dib, for he was the patron saint of something or other resonant of marine life. He is one of those saints for whom there is no convincing evidence of his actual existence, and it may be that he was simply a phantom shimmering in vapours from the brains of seaside mystics. Buried in the churchyard was one such mystic, a wise woman known as the Woohoo Woody Woo Woman. Legend in those parts held that she it was who had fallen foul of the birds in the hills and had pelted the old boat builders with potatoes until they ceased to build boats, and that she had done so because she lived in mortal fear not only of the birds but of the sea. Hideous aquatic beings haunted her nightmares, from which she would awake crying Woohoo Woody Woo, hence the name by which she was known. Intriguingly, on the 22nd of November 1963, the day of the Kennedy assassination, she awoke screaming, Reynolds! 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 Like Edgar Allan Poe on his deathbed. But we do not know why, and nor did she ever divulge her dream, even to the district line dentist who did her bridge canal work and praised the enamel of her molars and was her confidant and, some said, her inamorata all those years ago, before the frightening birds haunted the hills, and while boats were still built in the cluster of huts on Pointy Town Beach, the huts clustered between two coastal features called Impagu and Sakatisak. She was invariably dressed, even festooned in those days, in a maroon shawl, the Woohoo Woody Woo woman. Maroon, too, was the colour of the plumage of the most frightening of the frightening birds. Did the shawl act as her protective shroud a la Palange? The district line dentist suffered from Daltonism or colour blindness, and he knew not what maroon was, nor how it differed from blue.
So that's Untitled Work in Progress, um, and there should be more of that next week. Meanwhile, um, this is called A Refutation of Some of the Less Plausible Claims Made by Dennis Kargpan in his woeful lecture delivered from the balcony of the Civic Hall at Bodger's Spinney on Thursday last, drawing a hailstorm to a gathering of ingrates and orphans. I wish to refute, while sipping from a glass of milk of magnesia, some of the less plausible claims made by that odious charlatan Dennis Kargpan in his woeful, and let's face it, mercenary lecture delivered from the crumbling balcony of the Civic Hall at Bodger's Spinney on Thursday last, during the most tremendous hailstorm I have ever seen in my life, to a gathering of bestial ingrates and orphans who were corralled into the square by Kargpan's team of electric cattle prod-wielding ruffians and forced to applaud his preposterous statements. Chief among these statements was his contention that toads are shy, usually nocturnal animals, hiding during the day in dark, damp places and hopping about at night in search of insects, grubs, slugs, worms and other invertebrates, that they are often brownish or greyish in colour and have warty skin, a flat head, swollen parotid glands on the side of the neck behind the eyes, bright, jewel-like eyes with a transverse pupil and slightly webbed toes, that they are often stouter than frogs and cannot leap as far, that the tongue of the toad is attached to the front of its mouth, that the tongue is flicked forward from the mouth and the sticky tip grasps the prey and carries it back to the mouth, that unlike most frogs most toads do not have teeth, that the tongue produces quantities of mucus to help in swallowing that all anurans blink when they swallow, and because there is no bone between the eye and the mouth, the eye is pushed against the roof of the mouth, forcing the food further back. Let me just sip some milk of magnesia before refuting this twaddle. There, I refute it utterly. I do not refute it on the basis of scientific fact, nor on my own acute observation of the natural world, nor do I refute it because I have read many, many learned papers about toads which counter these statements. Similarly, I do not refute it in homage to my mother, who was a self-proclaimed expert on toads and passed down her hard-won knowledge to me, because basically my mother was bonkers and confused toads with wrens and it should come as no surprise that all those articles about toads she sent off to the Reader's Digest and the Daily Telegraph Sunday magazine were written from her room in the St. Cynthia Mercy Home for the Deranged and the Bewildered. No, I refute this drivel simply because I bear a grudge against Dennis Kargpan. One day he will burn in hell. In the meantime, I shall not rest from my refutations of every word he utters from that pinched and slippery mouth of his. Well may he regret the day he chuckled at my bouffon.
Time now for our fictional substance of the week. Um, this week, the fictional substance of the week is ichor, or ichor, I-C-H-O-R. Imagine you are in ancient Greece, taking a stroll on Mount Parnassus. One of the gods of Greek mythology suddenly appears in front of you. Imagine, too, that you are not of a placid and thoughtful nature, as I'm sure you are, but a temperamental hothead prone to violence. Surprised by the sudden appearance of a deity, it doesn't really matter which one, your first instinct is to lash out in terror and alarm. You sock the god on its jaw, cutting its lip. Now, it is not blood which flows from the wound, but ichor, a colourless ethereal fluid which ran through the veins of all the Greek gods. If you are of a vampiric bent, be sure not to suck the ichor oozing from the god's cut lip, for though it confers immortality on the deities, it will be ruinous to you as a mere human, for it will poison you. Lord Byron wrote, He pattered with his keys at a great rate, and sweated through his apostolic skin. Of course his perspiration was but ichor, or some such other spiritual liquor. Whether ichor is the root of the word icky, as in, that sponge pudding was so icky that I felt a great wave of nausea overwhelm me to the point of love crafty and horror, is a moot point. Sometimes ichor is not fictional. In geology, ichor is a technical term denoting a fluid or emanation from a magma which is held to cause granitization of a rock. And in medical parlance, it means the watery ooze from an abrasion, scar or wound. Do not be mistaken next time such an ooze seeps from one of your wounds that you have somehow been transformed into an immortal super-being. Rather than saying, as the Emperor Vespasian did on his deathbed, Oh, I must be turning into a god. You should instead go and see your doctor. All the better if your doctor's surgery is at the lip of a magma-riddled volcano. Next week's Hooting Yard fictional substance of the week will be Phlogiston. series of unfortunate cows. Misfortune can strike a cow out of the blue. To give but one example, the field in which it is standing may become flooded after heavy rainfall, or if not flooded exactly, then pitted with many, many puddles. No cow likes to stand in water, so such a circumstance must be counted a misfortune. The cow in the puddle, however, is une jolie vache compared to the cow which inattentively wanders onto some railway tracks and then comes to a halt. 
continuing across the tracks would be the wiser option for as long as the cow remains where it is it is an imperiled cow got that an imperiled cow listen carefully but unlike owls cows are not noted for wisdom the imperiled cow on the railway tracks may suffer the misfortune of being killed by a runaway locomotive without a cow-conscious driver at the helm. I am not sure helm is the correct word for the little cabin in which a train driver, cow-conscious or otherwise, sits or stands, but let that pass. What we can say with certainty is that a motionless cow in the path of a runaway train will suffer the greatest of all misfortunes, that is, a violent death. By comparison, the previous cow, the one standing in the puddle, is almost as happy a cow as the laughing cow that mysteriously appears on the wrappers of a brand of processed cheese triangles in this country, and perhaps in other countries too. If my memory serves, that laughing cow is red and white. If a real cow was red and white, it too would probably suffer this misfortune, for its coloration would make it an easy target for predators. Larger, more savage beasts, ones with vision alert to bright primary colours, in this case red, would be far more likely to attack the laughing cow than a neighbouring cow that was, say, beige or dun or even dappled. Such being the case, one wonders why the red and white cow is laughing. The fourth in our series of unfortunate cows is the one that is stricken by disease. In the popular mind, the most notable cow disease is bovine spongiform encephalopathy. Encephal encephalopathy. I'm going to start that sentence again. In the popular mind, the most notable cow disease is bovine spongiform encephalopathy. Forget it. Or mad cow disease. I, for one, can never read the technical phrase without visualising a cow with a brain that has turned to sponge. That may be because I'm mispronouncing the word spongiform. Either way, I think we can agree that this is the least fortunate cow that we've encountered so far. Next week, we'll be taking a stroll down a pathway that leads to four more cows assailed by misfortune. Until then, your homework is as follows. Answer the following questions to the best of your ability and with a certain dash. Got your pens and paper? Right. Question 1. If, through some eldritch soul transfer conjured by a warlock, you swapped places with one of the four unfortunate cows, which one would it be and why? Question 2. Would you follow the example of the red and white cow and laugh in the face of misfortune, or would you take steps to avert it? If so, how? Question 3. What tips would you give to a cow standing in a puddle? And finally, question 4. Imagine you are a train driver. Would you be a cow-conscious train driver? If so, list six separate examples of your cow-consciousness. So that's this week's homework.
Well, having had a great deal of difficulty saying the word encephalopathy, encephalopathy then, um, I'm going to challenge myself again by um, attempting to read to you another piece full of words I can't pronounce properly. But, you know, that's all part of the fun of hooting yard, really. You know, we don't... um, Not perfectionists here, and sometimes things go wrong. Anyway, where was I? In a culture dominated by pap... It's ever more important to exercise our brains and keep them supple. There are countless techniques for giving our craniums crania, a boost, activities which seem to have little or no practical utility but send our synapses a-buzzing. Chess, crosswords and numerical puzzles are popular and an alarming number of people pay homage at the altar of brain guru Tony Buzan he of the sepulchral voice and sinister black cape. I don't know if you've seen the number of Tony Buzan books in your local bookshop, but believe me, it's quite terrifying. I once went to see Tony Buzan give a talk, and he has a very sepulchral voice. And indeed, he sports a sinister black cape. Anyway, at Hooting Yard, we've devised a new method of training your brain. It's cheap simple and most importantly it's fun and we're very pleased to launch it today with a special gala in the field next to the blister lane bypass which you'll probably have missed by the time you listen to this set to become a popular craze memorize all the place names in finland suomi can be played by young and old alike Over the next few years, we will be listing all the place names in Finland, Suomi, in no particular order, a dozen at a time. All you need to do is commit them to memory, perhaps while eating your breakfast. You may wish to be a solo player, or you can gather with other players of Memorise All the Place Names in Finland, Suomi, and hold tournaments. But remember, overexcitement can be a risk at such events, so please take advice from your doctor if you suffer from any perilous ailments. So to start you off, here are the first 12 Finnish place names to memorise, and uh, I apologise in advance, of course, for which what will probably, to any Finnish speaker listening, be absolutely terrible pronunciation. So here's the first 12. Peter Jarjavi, Enonlati, Tukala, Hupaka, Torp, Aho, Sund, Marian Hamina, Ergmo, Tormasenvara, Korkakangas, Lumparland. So there you go, you can memorize those. Um, 12 Finnish place names and you too can play Memorise All the Place Names in Finland with your family and friends. Um, As the nights are drawing in, I'm sure that will be a handy pastime. That's the end of Hooting Yard on the Air for this week. I'll be back next week, possibly with more of untitled work in progress, more about the district line dentist and the frightening birds. And um, thank you for listening. I do hope you've enjoyed it. And um, bye-bye.